This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is December 20th. We have Brad Penault as a guest. Brad is CFA and the Capital Market Strategist for Fidelity, and has been with Fidelity a very long time, about 25 years, I think I saw Brad, right? So It's hard, hard to believe, Drew, but yeah, yeah. it's true. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, uh, like always, we have Tim Parati, um, our, our Chief Investment Strategist as well. Um, and we just want to kind of have a broad conversation as we're wrapping up 2023 and rolling into 2024 on any factors that might arise this year and some general trends we'll see. Uh, so with that, yeah, let's just get started. Um, Brad, what is your market outlook going into 2024? And let's kind of have a conversation on, you know, sectors you like, estimates, um, and maybe we can talk about whether there'll be a hard or soft landing. Yeah, you bet, Drew. I mean, all very relevant inquiries as we think about the turn of the calendar year, for sure. Uh, so I'll be really efficient. The outlook we have for the financial markets into 2024 uh, is one of positivity. Uh, we do believe the markets uh, will have a good year for lots of different reasons. But if we think about it through the lens of the price multiple on the market, uh, we think about the price investors are willing to pay, right, for uh, you know share of a risk asset. And that's not just stocks, but could be high yield bonds, could even be high quality bonds. And then we think about the fundamentals, right, that that asset provides. And if you think about it, uh, next year, the earnings expectation for the S&P 500 are expected to be up 12 percent. Uh, that number gets us to an EPS of $245 or so per share. It's been a moving target, but it's been in that vicinity now for several months. Uh, and that comes after two straight years, 2022 and 2023, where earnings PS growth was negative. Last year was down 5%. This year, about two and a half or so. That hasn't happened in over 70 years. So we are seeing an inflection point in terms of the fundamentals getting better for 2024. So we believe the denominator of the PE ratio is up next year. Corporate fundamentals should be buoyant. And then the question is, what are investors willing to pay? Now, that one's not as scientific. That one's a bit more artistic, right? It's a bit more emotional, but that's exactly it. What we're seeing, and we certainly, I'm sure, are going to talk about this, what we are seeing is these quote unquote animal spirits coming back to life where sentiment is starting to inflect higher for investors uh, and therefore the price to earnings multiple, which is actually quite expensive, call it 20 times. Uh, we believe A, it can either stay there so maybe the market's up 12% based on the earnings growth, or it might actually expand you know, incrementally. This year, it's been all margin expansion or excuse me, multiple expansion, but you could see that multiple maybe go to 21 times, and that could really allow the market to accelerate. You brought up this proverbial hard versus soft landing. That truly is the catalyst for the emotion getting better. Uh, we at Fidelity do believe uh, that the probability, can never say it's a, a binary 100 or zero, right? But the probability is certainly higher of a soft landing outcome. Now remember, soft landing, at least by Fidelity's lights, is where monetary policy tightens just enough, right? I mean, think about this, tightens just enough for the inflation mandate to come back down to earth where eventually the Fed says, okay, 
price stability of goods and services is back where we'd like it. They like it to be two. We're not there yet, but certainly we're not at nine percent. So I think that's a big deal. Um, but this inflation mandate coming back to where the Fed would like it without the labor mandate falling apart. Right. And that's really been the story. You could argue since the Fed commenced their tightening campaign back in March of 2022. Uh, so what is that? 20 months or so in 20 months. If you were a naysayer or somebody who's been more pessimistic, not you, Drew, but as an investor, you were thinking, OK, the Fed has one mandate. It's bringing inflation down. And I'm fearful that they're going to break something, right? They're going to break employment and unemployment's going to go up, which historically, that's typically how it works. But it hasn't happened this time. You know, hindsight being 2020, we've seen significant disinflation where the inflation rate's gotten back, as I mentioned, to where the Fed would like it. But the unemployment rate still sits at 3.7%. And I'll just say anecdotally, this economy is far from any recession, um, you know, just based on our lights. So that's the setup for 2024. Uh, it's a constructive outlook, uh, and we'll talk about what the Fed may or may not do and how that plays into it. But, um, you know, that's the outlook for 2024. So, Brad, let me, let me just kind of play devil's advocate a little bit. You made the point that 21 was an exceptional earnings growth year, and then 22 and 23, we didn't have any earnings growth. And I guess what concerns me is we're coming off of this phenomenally strong nominal GDP, right? Long-term earnings growth correlates with nominal GDP. Well, nominal GDP, any way you cut it, is decelerating. Not, not dramatically, I agree with you. There, there's nothing that I could see that would say, yep, the, the, the recession and massive job losses are right around the corner. But I guess I, I, I think 12% for next year looks aggressive considering – we have had such little earnings growth. We have had some margin degradation, uh, and at, and NGDP is slowing. So it, it it strikes me as a hard lift to get to you know six percent top line and six percent margin growth. So uh, what what drives it? How do we get uh, that top line and, and and margin acceleration after two years of going nowhere? Yeah, you know, my, I this I don't think this is an old saying, although we sometimes say there's an old saying. Uh, but Tim, it's a great question. Uh, I firmly believe that a household's or a business's consumption is another corporation's revenue. Mm -hmm. And as we think about the nominal GDP equation, right, we know consumption and business expense or in investment is about 85, right? Consumption seven, you know, the 15th business. So to get that right, to think about the prolific consumer, uh, to get that right certainly informs the outlook for nominal economic growth, nominal GDP growth. Our number for next year is 5% nominal GDP. Where I do believe I differ with you is the operating margins right now sit at about 16.5%. The all-time high operating margin was Q1 of 2020 uh, – yeah, so I'm sorry, Q3 of 2021. Uh, that was around 17.5%. Now, we that was all-time high, right? Before the pandemic, operating margins sat around 14, 15, if you were lucky. Um, we did see margin degradation. We sure did. But in our opinion, we saw that because revenue had slowed a bit, but more importantly, costs went up. Wage growth went up. Input costs were sky high. Mm -hmm. uh, and corporations did see a significant decline in margin. But we started at a historic high and now mm -hmm. we're heading back up i don't know if we get there but think about it this way 
there's a couple things I'll mention when it comes to the income statement, and this is why I believe the 12%, this is how I feel, the 12% is a sandbag number. I think you get better than 12% in 2024. Now, here's why. If I think about the, the major detriments, right, I'll keep it simple to three, uh, the headwinds to margin, one's wages, two is input costs, and three is cost of capital. On the wage front, wages are still elevated to be sure, right? Average hourly earnings is at 4%, right? The Atlanta Fed wage trackers at 5.2. You know, these numbers historically are high outside of the pandemic. But those numbers are normalizing, right? They're coming back down. And then if you think about it, and maybe this is hope, but we have started to see some nascent productivity. Uh, I think that's a big question mark for 2024. Will we continue to see these productivity gains where if you pay your employees a higher wage, but they're more productive, whatever process they're employing, the unit labor cost or the productivity adjusted nominal wages can continue to come down. And that's what we've seen here over the past six months. We'll see if it continues, right? We're going to look at that very closely. And who knows what the new buzzwords of artificial intelligence and automation or robotics, we might just have something here, you know, akin to what we saw in the 80s and 90s. You know, no guarantee, but we'll look for that. Secondly, the input costs. I'll measure input costs relative, uh, excuse me, vis-a-vis -vis the PPI, the producer price index. And I won't go into the numbers here, but while CPI has disinflated, that is your purchasing power if you're a corporation. That's a good proxy for revenue growth, right? Mm -hmm. What are your customers willing to pay for your product, good, or service? The CPI numbers come down, but guess what? And as you know, Tim, the PPI has come down faster. Yeah. So if I'm a corporation, I'm still able to charge about 3% more for my my product, but yet my input costs are basically flat relative to where they were 12 months ago. And when PPI falls faster than CPI, when producer price index falls faster than consumer price index, guess what? Margins tend to go up, right. and I do believe that happens next year. And then lastly, the cost of capital, the big headwind of, wow, now we're at 5.5% nominal Fed funds. That's got to make your debt more expensive. Well, it certainly will. There's no way around that. But corporations, just like households, borrowed so insatiably in 2020, well, really 2019, 2020, 2021, they locked that out. They termed it out. So there's a maturity wall. The cost of capital, quite frankly, has not gone up to any significant extent, even though the Fed has done what they've done. Now, that will eventually become a headwind, but I think that's more of a 25 story. And for all we know, the Fed might be you know, engaging in rate cuts by then, uh, which could make that headwind uh, certainly less of a headwind. So yeah. that's why I believe top line growth, op margin and earnings, right? i.e. the corporate fundamentals, have a fighting chance of surprising to the upside in 24. Yeah, that is a great answer. That is a great answer, right? PPI falling faster than CPI. We have had a little bit of a productivity, productivity surprise. I'm a bit dubious, right? We all, we all know that we can't predict productivity. Um, you know, it, it, there, there's, there's a lot of moving parts. And as you say, we'll see what happens on cost of capital it brings us back to the 10 year. I feel like any and every question that we ask you, we're going to go back to, well, we'll see what the 10 year does, right? <laughs> it's so true. I mean, who would have thought knocking at 5% now we're, you know, knocking at 4% if we, if you can get it. 
Um, yeah, it, you just, it's been an interesting year. Uh, and I even have thoughts on that. Um, but yes, it will, we'll see what happens here, but I do believe corporate fundamentals, um, you know, directionally, uh, could be an ally and, and not a foe and for what it's worth. And I think it's worth a lot because the market is already discounting into 25 right mm. now. We get a bit more opaque when we go 12 plus out. But 275 is the earnings number expected for 25. That would be another 11 plus percent on mm -hmm. top of 24. Uh, yeah, we'll see. But this wouldn't be the first time that we've had back to back double digit earnings growth. Sure. So, you know, again, in 12 months, we'll do this again, perhaps. And we'll we'll revisit, see how well we did and, and what the 25 year looks like. Yeah. I guess this kind of the follow-up would be, you know, how's this market outlook impacted by bonds? I mean, a couple like the year ago, the 6040s got decimated, and then obviously in November we've seen um, a huge rebounds, uh, especially in light, you know, of the Fed having discussions that we might see some rate cuts this year. Uh, you know, how, what's your overall outlook on the bonds? Yeah, so you're right, Drew. And just a piece of fact, and you probably know this, but I found it fascinating. November 2023, the 60-40 portfolio using 60% S&P 500, 40% Barclays Bond Aggregate Index had its best month since December of 91. You know, when that happens, you have to perk up and say, okay, 32 years in the making, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> and, and of course, we know it was all about rates, 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 and maybe rates is the wrong word. It was yields, 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 because rates are more the Fed and yields are the market. And the market certainly repriced higher uh, in terms of bond price and lower in terms of bond yield. So overall financial conditions certainly became much more attractive, right, for the 60-40 you know, the outlook we have for bonds, you know, to think about where we are going, let's think about where we've been, and I won't go too far back. I'll just go back to 2008. And the post-global financial crisis period, it was marked by two things when you think of bonds. Uh, number one, your know, bonds were a terrific diversifier. I mean, bonds, let's not forget, right? They were your very best buddy in 2008. It was the only thing that really went up, right? Treasuries killed it. But that's because the Fed went to zero rates in September of 08. We remember it well, how to believe, right? 15 years. Uh, but we remember it well. Uh, and then everybody wanted to be in bonds. And the good news is they really provided that negative correlation. Let's not forget, ladies and gentlemen, when we have two assets, you want to have a correlation coefficient that's as low as you can get it. And if you can get negative, well, here you go. That's great. Because while one might do something, the other is going to do the opposite. And that really defines diversification. And we had that, right, negative correlation really up until last year. Now, that's the good about bonds the last 15 years. They were a ballast, you know, a source of ballast. The bad is that, boy, did you pay for it, right? I mean, you got very little income in your fixed income strategy the last 15 years. So there was a tremendous opportunity cost, and you probably would have been better off being in equities, right, because they absolutely killed it the last 15 years. Okay, 
So what happens last year? Well, we know last year bonds had their worst year right, by a multiple of five, right? Um, and it wasn't so much because the Fed jacked rates up. It was because, you know, the actual yield or the coupon, right? There was no defense, right? It's like the Death Star not having its shield up. I can tell you right now the Jedis would have beat them pretty, pretty easily. Uh, <laughs> they, did, they always, right? The bad guys always hid behind those shields, as you know, gentlemen. Uh, so we had no shield in early 2022. And then all of a sudden, here comes the Fed to shoot right there at the heart. Uh, enough about that analogy. But you get the point. Bonds were set up for failure in 2022. It was a perfect storm, right? So now here we are about to embark in 2024. Tell us more, right? Well, those shields, not only do we have them because coupon income is so much higher, yields are so much higher, right? They were 50 basis points. Now they're 500 basis points. Uh, the shields are fortified, right, to say the least. And we do know the Fed has put us on notice. Chairman Powell just last week said what, right? Not only are we not going to do rate hikes, we're actually thinking about rate cuts because we want to balance the dual mandates, right? Inflation's pretty much taken care of. Now we want to make sure the labor doesn't fall apart here. Let's not forget the Fed doesn't want to cause a recession. Uh, it would have been collateral damage if they actually did it. So now the Fed's talking about rate cuts. Now, don't forget how bonds work. When rates go down, bond prices typically go up. Right, because the vintage you're holding is worth so much more because you're probably going to own a higher coupon, right? So somebody's going to have to pay you more for it. And that's the beauty of bonds, right? It's just bond math. So the outlook for 2024 is that bonds will pay you more. You might see some capital appreciation if the Fed actually induces rates lower. And I still think that's an F, but we can talk about that. Uh, and they are still going to provide very effective diversification because inflation's down lower and the Fed's not looking to continue to tighten. So to me, you have a more superior uh, environment for bonds where you still get the diversification benefit, but now you're actually getting credible income. And Drew, the way you phrased the question uh, before you asked that maybe a second way, say, hey, what's up with bonds? You know, bonds are competing for equity allocation now, right? You know, you think about the last 15 years, because interest rates were zero and because bonds didn't pay you much, uh, there was this acronym that people were using. There is no alternative, right? T-I-N-A, meaning there was no alternative if you wanted to be an investor than investing in equities, right? That was the only game in town. And especially for institutional investors like pension plans, for example, uh, there truly was no other game than buying equities. Well, now there's another game in town. And it is called fixed income uh, with, you know, I would say effective yields uh, that look very attractive here, uh, especially on the, the high yield side. I mean, for what it's worth, you have your high quality bonds they will get you about 5% in yield, but you could go below investment grade. We call those high yield bonds, of course, and that gets you almost 9% yield. Um, and that's more equity-like because those companies are highly levered up, but their revenue for a lot of these companies continues to allow those companies to service their debt. So the default rates are low, uh, and one could argue um, that 9%, again, no guarantee, but certainly that 9% uh, could be a plausible you know, expected rate of return in that, in that asset category just based on you know, the, the fundamentals of the economy and, and the corporate market continuing to you know, be relatively good. Let, let me ask you about uh, duration and, and and the you know the the move that we saw to five and then this move that really seemed to be stimulated by the QRA right the Treasury came out in the quarterly refunding announcement and they surprised the market by being more bill heavy and bond light and there's been a lot of 
ink spilled over the last few months about this concept of supply. And do we now live in a world where maybe maybe there isn't an adequate demand for the supply of U.S. you know longer end duration? Do, do, do you think what do, what do you think of that argument? Do, do you think the QRA was meaningful? And do you think uh, Secretary uh, Yellen will continue to keep issuance uh, heavy at the front end? I I. I very good question, right? Because is this just lip service, right? I mean, how influential were Yellen's actions, right, in the middle to late part of October? Uh, and is the liquidity, and by, by many accounts, the liquidity, if you think about the Treasury General account being brought down, the reverse repo market, right? Obviously, the demand for that is going away as the Fed's looking to pivot. Um, we saw about $300 plus billion of additional liquidity enter into the system, and some could argue that's a, you know, let's just say one of the tailwinds that's allowed this market to do better, uh, both on the bond and equity side. The question is, where do we go from here? And Tim, to your to your point, the supply versus demand of marketable treasury securities, uh, if there's more supply to fund the deficit, right, and the deficit's one six, one seven, almost two trillion dollars. Yeah. The Treasury needs to continue, right, to bring money in. But if the demand for Treasuries maybe here locally, right, i.e., institutional investors, retail investors, or maybe major um, uh, economies like China and Japan, if that demand on the margin is down, you know, if I if I keep it real simple, just supply demand. You flood the market with Treasuries. The demand's low. Well, the price is going to go down. The yield's going to go up. And of course, that affects what we call the term premium, right? Longer duration treasury securities, um, you know, have a have a higher yield. That is all true. I also believe, though, a big reason why uh, we saw the U.S. Uh, the ten-year Treasury go to five percent uh, was because the economy was doing just fine, right? right? Really, from July until November, you know, that five percent made sense to us, uh, just because. Well, if you have good economic growth or a lack of a recession, the ten-year Treasury should be priced higher. And what we've seen since then clearly is the Fed pivoting, at least in, in words, not in action, um, that, hey, expect a cut or at least we're not going to tighten anymore. You know, the entire yield curve is obviously shifted, right? Not just the yeah. long end, right? So we've seen it shift. Where do we go from here? You know, Fidelity believes that if the economy remains buoyant, and that's the word I'm using here, right, which you could say it's good, which I think that's true, uh, the 10-year Treasury yield should be above 4%. Right. It, it yeah. clearly should. So I'd say it's probably overbought here. Uh, but should it be above 5%? Well, no, there's still an inherent fragility in this market. We're not going back to an early economic cycle where we're going to reaccelerate. The unemployment rate would disallow that, right? We're not going to get a bunch of new jobs, more income, more spending. So even though we're not calling for a recession, we're calling for a you know, let's just say a deceleration in economic activity, but that's very different from a recession, and it's also very different from reacceleration. So the ten-year Treasury probably trades range-bound. It's a big range, but between four and five percent. Um, I wouldn't be too cute, not that you are, but if it, you know, for those of you listening, I wouldn't be too cute about trying to time when I was going to own duration. Right? We know right. that the bond index has a duration of six years. 
we have a flagship, you know, bond fund that's six years. A lot of firms do. You know, we're comfortable with that six-year duration. To us, we call it the sweet spot, the belly of the curve. Yep. You don't want to be too far out because you can get hurt, but you also don't want to be too short because there's no duration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to us, five, six, seven years, that seems to make a lot of sense based on risk-adjusted returns going forward. Yeah. We come in this year, uh, there's a lot of things going on in terms of political risk, right? So you got Ukraine and Russia still unabated. I got China, Taiwan, Middle East is turned into, uh, still contained, but the risk of that turned into a broader war. And then, and then you have the election. Um, so what's kind of your thoughts on how this impacts the markets um, and whether it's, you know, already kind of baked into what we're seeing? You know, it's a, it's, it's a challenge because everything you brought up is not something that we'd ever want to ignore, right? Especially the atrocities overseas, right? So uh, we always like to we always like to disclose that we don't want to be insensitive to it. But I, I, as it relates to your question, right? How does it affect the the prices of risk assets? Well, to understand that, and, and by the way, it will affect the prices of risk assets day to day, right? Hour to hour, undoubtedly, right? Headlines have a way of right, of really shifting the winds of the financial markets, but those are just headlines. And if I were an engineer, I would argue there's this signal versus noise ratio. And yeah, you could say in aggregate, a lot of these observations are noise. And again, I'm not suggesting Israel, Hamas, and, and Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan. That's not noise, but as it relates to the intermediate to longer term direction, like the compass point for the market, it's not signal. It clearly isn't. Um, and I'll, I'll give an example, maybe a bit more domestically. We do have an election year next year, of course. Uh, we suspect the two candidates, you know, hard to say it, but um, I don't think anyone's happy, <clears throat> but it would be Biden on the Democratic ticket. It's very difficult to unseat an incumbent, right, unless they are proactive, like LBJ in 68. He he was proactive and said, I'm not running on the, on the ticket, right, for different reasons. Uh, but it's difficult to see an incumbent, right, off the ticket. So Biden will be the representative uh, for the Democratic Party. And, you know, I'm not sure how it's working out this way, but it seems like Trump is going to get the nod uh, on, the, on the Republican side. I bring this up because what we typically see in presidential election years, especially the second half of the year, is we see the incumbent, if it's not an open election, and it certainly is not this time around, we see the incumbent go for broke, right? They start to enact some type of growth policies. I'll give you one simple example. The president could, if they'd like, they could do a moratorium on student loan payments or reduce that sometime in the second half. Um, Not to say they're going to do away with it, right? We already know that didn't work out, but just a moratorium. uh, They could do that via executive action, kind of wild, but that could be a positive, right? Um, So that uh, that actually would help the market in the short term. Um, But that's just an example. But overall, uh, we we continue to monitor these issues. Uh, Maybe one additional thought here as it relates to Israel and what's happened with that conflict. There was some thought, now we weren't carrying much weight on it, but there was some thought that that could move the market if that became a much more regional conflict, right? So Hezbollah, for example, out of Syria, maybe Iran gets involved, right? A bit more explicitly, not just behind the curtain. And we thought if Iran got involved, maybe that would disrupt oil production. Iran produces about 2 million barrels per day. 
It's only about 2% of world supply, but still just enough to maybe increase fossil fuel costs, which would have, all things held equal, been a slowdown, right, for economic activity if gas prices were $4, right? I think everyone would agree. That hasn't happened, you know, dot, 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 yet. I don't know if it will. I suspect it won't. Um, but so we maybe thought fossil fuels could have been the arbiter of what could have slowed down the economy. So that's just how we're thinking about things. So it's not all noise. Uh, fossil fuel costs, uh, you know, certainly could be a headwind. But we just haven't seen that. But, and for what it's worth, China and Taiwan, you know, our opinion there is China is watching very carefully what's happened with Russia, Ukraine. You'll consider that a dress rehearsal for what not to do, right? If you yeah. want to be uh, a, <laughs> really? a, you know, a, a more uh, benevolent society with growth. You know, China, they're not foolish. Uh, they stand to lose a lot more than Russia, right? I mean, China's the world's exporting engine, uh, and a lot of that would just go away. Um, so, you know, as much as they'd want to recoup Taiwan uh, as they see it, I just don't think it's in their best interest to do so. So, you know, again, those are our thoughts, not to say it can't happen, but, you know, that would be a real challenge uh, for the Chinese economy for sure. You know, it, it's such an important construct to talk about the signal and the noise, right? I mean, there's always something to worry about in equity markets. I'm usually the guy that worries about them. Uh, but yeah. there is so so much of that noise is often in the geopolitical in geopolitical worst case scenarios that that don't play out right so your that wall of worry is is so often deeply geopolitical and as you say there there's a lot of noise around risk in oil and things like that but look at the overall situation in oil we've actually had pretty good global demand but we've had great global and domestic supply. So, you know, as always, oil markets, if equity markets can make us look foolish, the oil markets do a much better job of making us look foolish because nobody saw an excess supply situation coming out of the U.S. this year. And that's been a godsend. You know, it's one of the reasons why growth has held up better and inflation has fallen faster. It's so true, Tim. It, you know, the only people that are not too happy with that statement are the long energy producers, right? And, right. and maybe those who have an overweight tax on mobile. Um, but it and is the Saudis true. that are holding the market up. Well, that's true. And and so energy has always been fickle. I mean, I get it with three years in a row, right? It, it had the best, uh, you know, sweet 16 birthday ever. Um, but, you know, it's had a challenge this year, to your point, all about uh, the lack of scarcity of supplies, how I think of it. So Saudis, shale, right, you name it. Uh, we we have enough to go around is, is the yeah. point. So you know, let's hope that continues. Where I where I worry that there is a signal in political is domestically and that we have gotten to a level of governmental incompetence. Right. If you look at the Fitch downgrade and the and the Moody's um, lowering their bias, uh, it is about governmental incompetence. How are we going to address our near two trillion dollar deficits could be higher if we do enter into a zero growth or recessionary period where there's no where there's less capital gains and so forth. And, you know, you look at what the deals are that are happening on Capitol Hill today. They're really each side gets a tax cut and you're going to move on. And, and, and there is at least, I believe, uh, less and less competence um, due to a certain level of populism, gerrymandering, the construct of what our political system looks like now where I just find it hard to believe that we're going to have people in Congress who can make the right decisions to either raise revenue or cut spending. It's just too hard to do. 
it is hard. And, you know, thinking about this incompetence, even the Fitch downgrade, if, if, and we've all read it, right, for those of you who haven't seen it, but their first paragraph was not just about the quantitative, right, meaning the big debt level, the big deficit level. Uh, that's like us maybe carrying a credit card balance that we just never can pay or we're just overburdened with debt, right, as a household or corporation. No, that's not what they cited. They cited the fact that this is an incompetent, right, led government. Um, Congress truly, right, pun intended, can't get their act together um, and, you know, they didn't say this, but this is the way I think of it, right? Congress is the, is really like the board of directors for a corporation. Um, you know, maybe the treasury is, is the C-suite and these board of directors just can't figure it out. So the lack of governance is, uh, is very palatable. You know, I always think about, okay, we have two parties, but we truly don't. You could argue we have four parties, right? Uh, you have your right of center and your left of center, uh, as we've had for, you know, 100 years, 200 plus years, but then you have your right of right and your left of left, uh, and that's making it very difficult. And case in point, um, we thought the Pelosi um, uh, spread she had in the House, right, when she was Speaker, I mean, she had what? Seven, right? She had seven more Democrats than Republicans, and we thought that was all-time tight, but then comes this guy McCarthy, and he had four. Uh, so, you know, that alone tells you that governing, especially in the lower chamber, uh, has never been more difficult because there's just no, you know, cohesive constituency is how I like to think of it. And I don't necessarily see that changing. You know, the other question you kind of bring up, right, it's implied for sure, Tim, I hear it in your voice, is when do we bring down the deficit, right? Typically deficits at 6% GDP, those are saved for recessions, right? Um, and that's when the government's spending money to you know, get out, out of recession. They're not saved for an unemployment rate of 3.7%. Um, so boy, what do we do, right, if we need to go ahead and, and cool things down? Uh, it is going to be a challenge, but fiscal austerity is not a term that Congress knows very well. Uh, and to your point, it's either going to be more spending now, I get it. The Dems like to spend, but now the Republicans do, too, or less taxes um, or excuse me, less spending or more taxes to bring down this deficit. And I just I'm not I'm not so certain that happens. Um, yeah. So this it's is what I put on a shelf. Yeah, It's a question mark. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know to right. what extent, but you can't just say, ah, don't worry about it um, because we probably should worry about it. But maybe it's not a near term issue. Yeah, probably right. And yeah, maybe uh, we can wrap up the conversation today on, you know, housing, um, some cracks, but just ultimately, where, do, where does that go from here? Yeah, there are some cracks, but think about it, to define those cracks, uh, housing sales. So if anyone has a realtor in the family, maybe you're one yourself, your activity has been down, right, substantially, certainly relative to where you were in maybe 2020, 2021. Uh, and we know where that is, right? Uh, it's all due to the spread in mortgage rates. The effective 30-year fix has come down a bit, but it's still hovering around seven, maybe high sixes. And that's if you get a good FICO score. Uh, but we do know the effective mortgage rate, right, for the existing homeowner who carries a mortgage uh, is right around 3.8%. So think about that. You have about a 3% delta between what new mortgages cost and what existing mortgages are. So who's really looking to buy, right, a piece of residential real estate? Uh, not many, at least not as many as we've seen in years past. And what that's also doing is acting as a double headwind, not just in the cost of the mortgage, but the cost of the home 
right? So because there's a lack of new supply on the market, it's actually allowing home prices to remain buoyant and remain higher, right? We really haven't seen a, a downturn in home prices. They're still up about 2 to 3%, depending on where you live, but that's a national figure year over year. Uh, so where do we go from here? I don't know about you, Drew, but you know, maybe this is optimistic. But if the Fed were to give us uh, a little bit of juice, right, if they were to cut the three times that they are espousing they'll do, and they're ex expecting three cuts of 25 basis points, a quarter of a point each, that gets another 75 basis points really off the mortgage rate. And maybe mortgages come down even a bit more. You could start to see some momentum uh, in housing uh, into 2024. Uh, be interesting to see how that plays out. You ask um, about housing, I would argue it's 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 one of those variables of the economy that can either be a plus or a really big negative. Arguably, the only time we've seen it act as a really big negative was the housing crisis in 07. Uh, and in that environment, home prices had gotten so expensive and so many people had variable rate mortgages and they all had these home equity lines and they were using homes and housing and the equity as a way to consume. And that really was a house of cards. So when that went bust, all that consumption went bust and then layoffs ensued, which only furthered the pain. And that's why it was a financial crisis of epic proportions. Today, we're not seeing consumption predicated or being sourced by home equity. You know, home equity is too expensive to obtain uh, at eight and a half percent, right? Which is where your prime rate is. So that's a good thing, right? All this consumption we're seeing, it's really coming because people are gainfully employed. They feel like even if they lost their jobs, they can find one that pays them a similar amount. And that really allows for courage and a bunch of, you know, I would say bravado on behalf of the US-based consumer. But I can tell you, they're not sourcing their consumption from home equity. And that's key here. So not to say that housing doesn't matter so much, because it certainly does. Um, but my take is that housing will inflect higher and uh, for no other reason than the Fed's going to induce rates lower, which could provide a marginal catalyst for demand to go up and maybe supply to come up as well, um, which should allow housing activity uh, both on the resales and new construction uh, to inflect higher, which all things held equal. That should be a positive for the United States economy. Yeah. You know, housing is always fascinating, right? We all, you know, we learn from our most recent experience. The last recession we all lived through was the the incredible housing recession. It probably exaggerates how much we all focus on it. Um, and you're right. People are not pulling cash out of houses to consume. But there is a wealth effect. There is a psychological wealth effect. Don't you think people just feel wealthier? They see the the equity that they have in their house. Anybody who wants to be bearish here is probably thinking that the unemployment rate will move up because housing construction will finally slow. Housing new construction prices are coming down. But, you know, you look at the builders, the sentiment, it doesn't take a huge move and mortgage rates for sentiment to bounce right back up for the builders, for traffic uh, to bounce right back up. You mentioned realtors. My wife is a realtor. She had 80 people, 80 people look at a sort of affordably priced house in our suburb of New York the other day. So there is demand. The demand is still there. And I think one of the things we've learned in this cycle 
is how much accumulated wealth matters and intergenerational accumulated wealth. And what you've seen in this cycle is cash buyers actually larger than first time home buyers. And, and what you see a lot of is people buying houses, even if they're upgrading, but there's some family money that is helping them gain that gain that asset. And it's just another way that accumulated wealth, I think we've underestimated how important that was gonna be to overall consumption in this cycle. So I agree with you on the, on, on the positivity towards housing. It's hard for me to see housing really fall apart here. You assume that there's some mean reversion on affordability, but it ain't gonna be quick. I would concur, Tim, and, and I know we're, we're at the end of it, but let me just yeah. summarize because you brought up some good points. So at the heart of it, the real question we're trying to figure out here is, right, ultimately, what do the markets do? But you know, to us, the precedent to that or the precursor is what does the economy do, right? And do we continue to see an economy that remains stronger for longer? And yes, we do believe that to be true. You know, all that accumulated wealth that we really built up over one of the best equity markets, right, ever, right, 10 plus years, we needed a spark to really start to, you know, unleash that wealth. And the spark was the pandemic. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was on a, uh, we did a big call with a retail consultant, this individual, truly an expert in all matters of the US-based consumer. He's in his 70s. He was the CEO of many major, major uh, retail operations. Um, you know, Macy's is one example years ago. And we asked him about the probability of recession and he starts to chuckle uh, and he wore this purple suit, just very, very sharp. Um, and he says, well, let me tell you something. Uh, in all my years of doing this, the U.S.-based consumer has never been braver, never been more courageous, never been stronger. Yeah. And it's all because of that pandemic, right? And he he said this uh, a bit comically. He said, every consumer in the country should get a T-shirt that says, I survived COVID-19. And on the back, it should say YOLO. <laughs> and that's what he said. And he said, think about it, right? To your yeah. point, anecdotally, whether it's the 80 people showing up at a home with cash uh, or the local restaurant, and it doesn't have to be in the major metropolitan area of Manhattan, I mean, even your local hometown, you know, sporting events, concerts, I mean, you name it, anecdotally, this economy is chugging along. And I feel like it's this unleashing of all of this wealth, net yeah. worth, is at a historic high, never been yeah. higher in history. The yeah. debt burden never been lower, yeah. right? So, I, so we're we're constructive, but I'd say I'm hedging there a bit. We're very constructive on the outlook for the markets because the economy, which was so destined to go into a recession, it just hasn't happened. And maybe I'll leave you with this: we talk about the soft versus hard landing. Should the soft landing become the de facto outcome, and I am you know, convinced that's where we are, but there's still an uncertainty, so we'll see. We could be looking at another 1995 environment. And if you recall, 1994, Alan Greenspan, the Fed chairman at the time, took interest rates from 3% in early 94 to 6% in early 95. The last rate hike was February of 1995. We get to six. Now, in July of 1995, 
Greenspan and the FOMC committee, they cut rates by 25 basis points. And the reason why they did that was not because the economy required it. Unemployment was fine back then. It was because the inflation mandate had been achieved, right? Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. So Greenspan didn't call that a cut. He deemed it a mid-cycle adjustment. You know, you mm-hmm. got to love it, right? As only a Fed chair can call it. <laughs> so I believe you could see a mid-cycle adjustment in, in 2024 where you have the best of both worlds. The cost of capital is down. The economic fundamentals are robust. Uh, and you could certainly see a period where, you know, uh, a you know, portfolio that's allocated appropriately with all the, you know, the planning and guidance and patience, right? Uh, you could see a portfolio do you know quite well not just 24 but maybe years beyond that so that's those are our high level thoughts as to where we see the markets going uh, but i really appreciate uh, you having me on here today to share fidelity's viewpoints you know brad that was a incredibly impressive that was a tour de force so articulate uh i really appreciate it well thank you i appreciate it as well and happy holidays to both you tim and you as well drew thanks gentlemen The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.